All right. Well, I want to welcome you all. Um, it's great that we have such a, a wonderful audience here. My name is Catherine Gedek Soltis. I have the privilege of serving as director of the Center for Peace and Justice Education here. And the center is hosting our annual uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. keynote lecture this afternoon. Uh, it's one of the highlights of our year, and it gives us an opportunity to celebrate, reflect, and expand upon the legacy of MLK, a man who has left an indelible mark on the pursuit of justice in the United States. Uh, in addition to tonight's very special program, we're gonna continue the celebration tomorrow here in the Connolly Center. Throughout the day, we'll be hosting our annual Freedom School, and Villanova faculty, staff, and students will be here in various rooms giving sessions um, on, on issues that help develop and expand the legacy of MLK, topics ranging from immigration, human rights, racial equality, environmental justice. Uh, the schedule's around the, the Connelly Center, and so I encourage you to, to take part in, in that special day tomorrow. But today, this afternoon, we have the great privilege of having something of a plenary session where we can learn from Dr. Sonia Douglas Horsford. And she is here today to give a talk entitled Learning in the World House, Educational Quality and Justice in the Post-Civil Rights Era. I'm gonna let uh, her be introduced in a moment. I just wanna say a few words before we begin. Uh, and I'd like to thank some of the departments who've co-sponsored tonight's lecture. Um, those are the Office of Service Learning, Villanova Center for Liberal Education, the Ethics Program, Department of Sociology, Africana Studies Program, Honors Program, Department of Education and Counseling, Center for Multicultural Affairs, Student Development, and Rays of Sunshine. So many thanks to the widespread support we have for this, this important event. And finally, I'd like to thank the dedicated and untiring staff of the Center for Peace and Justice Education who made this possible. Sharon Disher, Carol Anthony, Tim Horner, Will Stell, Jenny Kisco, and our two visiting faculty, Gay Strickler and Ronald Hill. Professor Carol Anthony is Associate Director of Peace and Justice who teaches wonderful courses for us on race, education, and social justice. Fitting for her to introduce today our keynote speaker. So I want to thank you again for joining us, uh, and I encourage you all to partake heartily in the question and the answer before we end tonight. And without further ado, I welcome uh, Professor Anthony to introduce our speaker. Welcome everybody. We are in for a treat today, I assure you. Um, I just want to set the stage a little bit by saying that um, this coming August, as many of you know, where it will be the 50th anniversary of perhaps the greatest speech in the history of the United States, and that's uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, right? And we have made a lot of gains since then, in 1963, but we also have very, very far to go. To realize that dream, we need people with a critical eye to see more clearly just how and where we are falling short. We need people who better understand the racial machinery of the past and can see how and where it moves on in the present. We do so so the future will have more space for making the dream a reality. Our speaker today, Dr. Sonia Douglas Horsford, is just one of those people. In reading her book last semester, I was absolutely stunned by what she revealed about our educational history, motivations for integration, and the prospects for social justice in the United States. As education is supposed to be the equalizer and key to the American dream, I'm delighted that she has agreed to speak with us today. Dr. Sonia Douglas Horsford is a senior resident scholar of education with the Lindsay Institute at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where she focuses on the history of education in the United States, politics of education, and the role of schools in society. She currently serves as principal investigator of a Spencer Foundation-funded research study entitled Losing in Las Vegas, Educational Inequality, Ideology, and Reform in the West, in which she examines the social and community forces in school district-led reforms that have sought to provide greater educational equality and opportunity in Southern Nevada. 
Her research has been featured in a number of professional journals, and she edited the book, The New Perspectives in Educational Leadership, Exploring Social and Political Community Contexts and Meaning. Her most recent book, For Sale Outside, and there are some signed copies, copies I assure you that it is well worth the purchase, and I intend on requiring it for my class next fall. Um, but this book is called Learning in a Burning House, Educational Inequality, Ideology, and Disintegration. In 2011, Dr. Forsford was awarded the Emerging Scholar Award by Division A of the American Educational Research Association, and then appointed to serve as Director A Program Chair for the 2012 Annual Meeting in British Columbia. Given her commitment to connecting theory and research with policy and practice, Dr. Forsford also serves as founder and director of the Las Vegas Children's Defense Fund Freedom Schools Program, which is a sub summer literacy program designed to provide engaging and meaningful educational opportunities for children, youth, and families in historically underserved communities in Southern Nevada. Her lecture is entitled Learning in the World House, Educational Quality, and Justice in the Post-Civil Rights Era. Please welcome Dr. Forsberg. Good evening. Good evening. How is everyone tonight? Great. I'm so glad that all of you are here tonight, and I would like to thank um, Dr. Catherine Gedick-Soltis. Um, for inviting me to be here to celebrate um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Um, I'd also like to thank Villanova University Center for Peace and Justice Education, as well as Carol Anthony and Bridget Dwyer for great conversation and being so hospitable um, in preparation for today's lecture. I'd also like to thank Sharon Drisher for making sure that I arrived here safely and on time, and for, of course, the students, faculty, and staff who are gathered here this evening, even those who are sitting on the floor in the back. Thank you so much uh, for being here. I'm humbled and grateful to be here with all of you this afternoon to reflect on the life, the contributions, and work of the great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. It's been more than 43 years since his death, the assassination of Dr. King in 1968, marking the end of the civil rights era in America. He was only 39 years old and never lived to see what he described as the promised land. In fact, in his famous I've Been to the Mountaintop speech delivered at Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee, the night before his death, Dr. King called on those assembled to do three things. One, to stay together in unity. Two, to remember that the issue is injustice. And three, to use their economic power as African Americans to advance the cause of justice by investing in and strengthening community institutions. For me, one of the most intriguing parts of this speech was the fact that Dr. King had a sense of peace and contentment amidst all of the violence and chaos that was taking place in Memphis. There were many threats awaiting him in Tennessee, and he knew that his life was coming to an end. But he sensed that something big was ha happening in Memphis in the nation, and in the world. So much so that he explained that if he were standing at the beginning of time and the Lord asked him, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? His answer would be the second half of the 20th century. He said that he would start by watching God's children trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt across the Red Sea through the wilderness on toward the Promised Land. That he would stop by Greece, Mount Olympus, and see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, and Aristophanes assembled around the Parthenon discussing the issues of life. That he would check out the Roman Empire, the Renaissance, and visit the home of the man for whom he was named after, Martin Luther, and watch him as he tacked his 95 theses upon the door at the Church of Wittenberg. That he would stop by 1863 and watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. And that he would even come up to the early 1930s to witness Franklin Delano Roosevelt grappling with the Great Depression, but reminding us that we have nothing to fear 
but fear itself. And that finally and strangely enough, he would turn to the Almighty and say, if you would allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. But sadly, Dr. King did not live to see the second half of the 20th century or the second inauguration of America's first black president, Barack Hussein Obama. A president who would acknowledge him in his second inaugural address as a king who proclaimed our individual freedom is inextricably bound to the freedom of every soul on earth on the very day that is named and observed in his honor. Nevertheless, on that night in Memphis, although Dr. King's life was in jeopardy, he declared that he would be happy because he believed the second half of the 20th century would be the greatest period of history. He warned the audience that there would be difficult days ahead. But as he put it, it really doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And so as we reflect on the life and work of Dr. King, I can't help but wonder whether or not Dr. King would be happy with what he would see today. Surely we have made tremendous progress as a nation, and he would be proud of these advances. But I also wonder what Dr. King would think of the fact that in the post-civil rights era, we are yet bitterly divided as a people by class, by race, and by generation. That in the post-civil rights era, we are witnessing the worst wealth, income, and opportunity gaps by race and among all Americans in our nation's history. That poor people in communities of color are still suffering from high rates of unemployment, neighborhood violence, failing schools, and severe health disparities. And that for the first time ever in American history, this generation of young people will fare worse than the generation that came before it. And then in terms of education in this post-civil rights era, this nation is still struggling to find ways to provide equitable and just opportunities for children regardless of the color of their skin or for what zip code they live in. That many of our nation's public schools, colleges, and universities, particularly those in low-income communities of color, are fighting for funds, resources, and for their very ex existence in the era of high-stakes accountability. That despite the legal victories that did occur in the second half of the 20th century, which ended a dual system of separate and unequal education, we have some of the highest rates of resegregated schools that the United States has ever seen, granting the American dream for some and schooling simply a nightmare for others. But when we review and understand the history and legacy of separate and unequal education in the United States, I don't believe that we would be surprised by the circumstances that we find ourselves in today, which is the point that I attempt to make in my book, Learning in a Burning House. I really became interested in the issues of school segregation and desegregation um, because I was concerned about the constant dialogue and discussion around the achievement gap. And I use that in quotations, the achievement gap, and what that meant. I wanted to know more about it and why, despite the Brown decision of 1954, which declared separate schools inherently unequal, that we were still struggling with gaps in educational inputs, resources, and outcomes. But it didn't take long to discover that, in fact, achievement gaps are simply a result of a long history and legacy of racism, of racial segregation, and discrimination, which permeated all facets of American life and also found itself in our school system. And we often fail to discuss this history when we point out that black children are performing at lower levels than their white counterparts or that they're failing to read at grade level at the same rate as their white peers, or that they're labeled as special education students disproportionately, or dropping out of high school at higher rates, or not enrolling in or completing college at the same rates as their white peers. We fail to look at the fact that for more than a century, the ideal and practice of separate but equal was codified in 1896 in Plessy v. Ferguson and was the law of the land for more than a century. That such laws required black and white students attend separate schools whether they wanted to or not because it was quote unquote for the good of both races. Under this dual or separate but equal, unequal, it was called separate but equal, but it was a separate and unequal system of education 
black children did not have access to textbooks, libraries, the local pool or recreational facilities that white children had. In most rural areas, black children only attended the schools that they had in their neighborhoods six months out of the year compared to white children who were in school nine months out of the year. The parents of black children had limited educational opportunities and many who had ancestors who were slaves and prohibited from learning how to read or accessing any form of public education. And for those who were able to finish high school, many of their states actually paid, many of their home states paid black students to attend college or university in another state so that they would not have to integrate their own state's university campuses. And it's hard to, re to realize that this is not a, a, a very distant history. In Learning in a Burning House, I present findings from a 2006 study that I did of retired African-American superintendents in the U.S. who attended all black segregated schools and later went on to lead desegregated school systems. And in short, they all had what I later called mixed feelings about mixed schools. They felt, to quote the late CRT scholar Derek Bell, that they got what they fought for, but in many ways they lost what they had. And what they had, which is often overlooked in the research uh, in valued segregated schools, was a strong sense of community. A community in which black schools served as pillars of strength that boasted exemplary teachers and parental support that teachers and parents worked together to prepare black students for what they anticipated and hoped would become a desegregated world. Where the black community provided support and refuge, knowing and having high expectations for their students. And that black parents, although today are perceived as not being involved or engaged in the education of their children, really reflected a different form of involvement and sacrifice. But unlike today, schools were not deemed to be good based on adequate yearly progress, no child left behind, or race to the top indicators, or the high stakes testing and growth models that are so commonly discussed in education today. Rather, whether or not a school was good was determined by the community, by the parents, and whether or not students could read, write, think critically, and compete once they entered a desegregated society. And so these segregated schools served as pillars of strength, and helped to form a sense of community that was established through the shared roles and responsibilities for the educational success of not only teachers, but parents and community members. This not only helped to build a system of support and high expectations for students, but was a source of financial contributions, advocacy, and leadership. And remember, many of these parents did not have a high school degree, did not have access to a high school education at that time. But through exemplary teachers, parent support, and strong principal leadership, the all-black segregated school typified the school-family-community linkages that many scholars and practitioners seek to reclaim here in the 21st century. And so while government-sanctioned segregation was horrible for all children, black and white, there were some valued aspects of black segregated schools that many who have experienced both systems wish could be incorporated into schools today. And so I think the most important from all of this research is to know that it's problematic to discuss gaps in achievement and outcomes in comparing black, Latino, white, Asian students, and Native American students to, to a one-time test without acknowledging this legacy of separate and unequal education in the United States. And so when we talk about school desegregation and inequality, um, it's almost impossible to do that without talking about the Brown versus Board of Education decision of 1954. And it's important to remember that the case not only affected Topeka, Kansas, but had a group of litigants representing Virginia, South Carolina, Delaware, Washington, D.C., and of course, Topeka, Kansas. And in this case, the NAACP successfully argued, and the court unanimously concluded that segregation did not belong in education and declared that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. It determined that state laws permitting and requiring such seg segregation denies to Negro children the equal protection of the laws guaranteed by the 14th Amendment, even though the physical facilities or other tangible factors of white and Negro schools may be equal. But despite the court's unanimous decision, and we often look at this as a very uh, shining moment in American history, I often wondered why the Brown decision occurred when it did in 1954 amidst all of the racism and discrimination that was taking place in the South, and the fact that many politicians and citizens were vehemently opposed to integration. 
and many of it had to do with the Cold War and America's standing and perception abroad. And the question of how we could um, ask another nation to really focus on equality when we had a whole second, a whole group of second class citizens, the African American population here in the United States. And so that Supreme Court decision, um, as some scholars would argue, was really to show an example to the world that we were serious about providing equality to all citizens. But the underestimation of the power of racism and racial subordination really undermined the victory that was accomplished in Brown I. According to authors Faults and Leak, the wave of triumph that engulfed the black community in the wake of the Brown decision was soured by the realization that change would not occur. Indeed, Brown I's promise of equal education in 1955 would dilute um, what Brown I established through its all deliberate speed provision. In fact, it was yet another year before Brown II occurred when the Supreme Court made its initial effort to determine when and how desegregation would take place. And for many of you may be too young to have experienced desegregation plans, but not until the 70s in many communities were desegregation plans actually implemented. And so you can see a lot of the resistance um, and the preemptive measures that were taking place to avoid desegregation in school districts all across the country. And so this include not only individual white flight with individuals deciding that they were going to leave the school district because they didn't want their children attending schools with black students who were deemed to be genetically or culturally inferior, but by local governments and school districts that shut down their doors and opened private systems to preclude black students from attending and desegregating the schools. And so various reactionary strategies were employed to circumvent attempts to integrate the public schools on all levels. And again, I think this is a part of the recent history that we don't talk about in terms of why we continue to have a lot of disparities in education. And so it was Dr. King who observed the consequences of mixing bodies without engaging in the difficult work of genuine integration. He said, we do not have to look very far to see the pernicious effects of a desegregated society that is not integrated. It leads to physical proximity without spiritual affinity. It gives us a society where men and women are physically desegregated and spiritually segregated, where elbows are together but hearts are apart. It gives us special togetherness and spiritual apartness. It leaves us with stagnant equality of sameness rather than a constructive equality of oneness. And so shortly before his death in 1968 and several years after many of his speeches and writings concerning his philosophy of integration, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. shocked his confidence in a meeting of his inner circle at the home of Harry Belafonte in New York. They had struggled very hard for the fight for, in for integration. They fought resistance from whites as well as from blacks who felt that the nonviolent movement was not going to result in the change that they had wanted. And they recount him being very preoccupied and pensive. Um, and he had sensed the mood around the nation that integration was not going to be as easy as he thought it would be. And so everyone was concerned, as you can imagine, who followed him and put their lives on the line for this cause of integration when Dr. King um, was starting to kind of question and second guess whether this was the right thing to do. But then he told them, we have fought hard and long for integration, as I believe we should have. And I know that we will win. But I've come to believe that we're integrating into a burning house. I'm afraid that America may be losing what moral vision she may have had. And I'm afraid that even as we integrate, we are walking into a place that does not understand that this nation needs to be deeply concerned with the plight of the poor and disenfranchised. Until we commit ourselves to ensuring that the underclass is given justice and opportunity, we will continue to perpetuate the anger and violence that tears at the soul of this nation. And so in her account of the same meeting, Marion Wright Edelman, founder and president of the Children's Defense Fund, recalled Dr. King to be deeply discouraged about the ability of our economic system as it continued or failed to confront the deep structural problems of racism, excessive militarism, and poverty, and that it would lead to our downfall. But his prophetic discontent concerning issues of racism and poverty in the war in Vietnam, which again are not often discussed, meant that blacks might be integrating into a burning house that exhibited immoral values, materialism, and the neglect of poor people, rendering the primary goal of integration as inadequate. 
and insufficient. This realization would impact not only his disappointment with the disintegration of the dream and hope for meaningful integration, but on a larger scale, the lack of moral vision that would continue to plague the country and the world. But fortunately, he didn't let that stop him or the movement. Because as his inner circle began to ask him what to do, he simply repi replied, become firemen. So in the book, Learning in a Burning House, I use the burning house metaphor and apply it to the field of education. To say that although integration is important and that we have desegregated the schools, if we do not continue to address the issues of poverty and of racism, violence in our schools, then we will continue to have students learning in a burning house. But at the same time, we can be encouraged by the fact that we can become firefighters, that we can become firefighters for justice and education, and that this fight for educational equality requires us to be prepared to combat the seen and unseen dangers that maintain separate and unequal education even after the Brown decision, even when the laws have been changed and we know it's the right thing to do. Firefighters protect life and property. Their level of preparation for the most dangerous conditions is critical to their success in achieving their goals of protecting life, property, and the environment. Through extensive training, familiarity with the nature, intensity, and the cause of fire and its deadly byproducts, and sheer determination, courage, and sense of purpose, these everyday heroes are skilled, equipped, and committed to fulfill their moral duty and service. While they plan for the worst of circumstances, they hope and as a result work tirelessly for the best of possible outcomes. And I believe in the field of education we need to have a new movement of people who are courageous, who understand the true history and origins of educational inequality in this country, and are willing to equip themselves with the tools and the skills to be able to advance educational equality and justice. And in the case of Dr. King, history tells us that he may have been distressed over the staunch resistance to his strategies for nonviolence and the dissension that ensued between him and black leaders concerning the future of the civil rights movement. Or because the intensity and the violent nature of the resistance to integration began to show itself as possibly something that could not be addressed and it was equally troubling as life under Jim Crow. But despite this heightened crisis of racial discord and explosive rhetoric that spewed from white supremacists, black militants, and a government divided, which seemed to fan the flames of racialized anger and resistance, Dr. King sought a seemingly rational solution to an overwhelmingly dangerous problem. And I think that sadly we can find ourselves in many of the same situations today with the heated racial rhetoric um, and the divisiveness in this country. But what we can do is learn from our history and again be courageous like firefighters and understand the circumstances that brought us here and what we can do to advance a more equal future and restoring the American dream for many children who do not have it now. And so what must be done to end the day of learning in a burning house where we have traded the problems of segregation for continued, continued structural racism, and economic exploitation. How do we develop, establish, and sustain meaningful educational change under such conditions? Well, the good news is that we have all the tools we need to make this happen. That like every other social movement, as our president so beautifully pointed out on Monday, from Seneca Falls to Selma and to Stonewall, we have the capacity to make change and advance social equality and justice. And I believe this is true for education. That for those who are committed to advancing educational equity and justice in the post-civil rights era, this is our time. And I think sometimes we forget that the civil rights movement was led by college students. It was the students who protested, who boycotted, and who helped to usher in um, many of the benefits and opportunities that we enjoy today. Through a grassroots movement, a community-based approach to education reform, we can find a better way to prepare our children academically for what is now a knowledge-based global economy, while also acknowledging their social, emotional, and cultural needs, and recognizing the economic and political realities of the communities in which they live. Communities that have experienced school desegregation and resegregation, busing, economic injustice, and in many cases, changing demographics that make what were historically all black communities now increasingly Latino, 
immigrant, with native-born and foreign-born, middle-class and poor, working-class, living side-by-side. Side. And so what does desegregation or resegregation mean in these new contexts? And despite the challenges and the deficit thinking that has plagued historically underserved communities for so long, their rich histories of struggle, their passionate people and commitment to justice is witnessed every day. Through a focus on early childhood education, family support, services and youth programs, and cultural enrichment through the arts and humanities, the focus on workforce development and adult learning, collaboration among our schools, churches, and community institutions, we can begin to create spaces that provide support for our children and families. And sadly, these are pieces that have been ignored or undervalued when we talk about education reform in the United States. And so to improve education, we do not need another program or project, but rather a very different way of working together, a different way of learning together, providing safe and loving environments for our children, supporting them from cradle to college and career by building strong schools and coordinating existing programs and services in ways that let our children know that we expect great things from them and are willing to make sacrifices of ourselves so that they can pursue their dreams. Crafting a vision that expects all children will, be, will go to school ready to learn and graduate from high school and go on to college ready for life. Through a community collaborative that includes local school districts, community colleges, universities, health districts, juvenile justice departments, police departments, local social service organizations, nonprofits, and most importantly, parents and community residents, we can begin to restore the institutions and partnerships that strengthen communities, schools, and the children who attend them. And perhaps now more than ever before, it is clear that we must not only work to invest in and strengthen our local schools and communities to ensure the American dream is yet available to all, but we must do it as part of a global community, what Dr. King described as the World House. Dr. King introduced this concept of the World House in his 1964 Nobel Peace Prize lecture at the University of Oslo, which has since been um, printed and published as an essay by the same name. It's one of my favorite lectures because it is not only beautifully written, it is also timeless in that it deals with so many of the same issues we are facing today. What Dr. King described as the triple evils of racism, war, and poverty. Dr. King opened this le lecture by describing the discovery of papers left behind by a famous novelist who had died. He states, among his papers was found a list of suggested plots for future stories, the most prominently underscored being this one. A widely separate family inherits a house in which they have to live together. He then explained, this is the new problem of mankind. We have inherited a large house, a great world house in which we have to live together, black and white, Easterner and Westerner, Gentile and Jew, Catholic and Protestant, Muslim and Hindu. A family unduly separated in ideas, culture, and interests who, because we can never again live apart, must learn somehow to live together in peace, that all, inhabit, all inhabitants of the globe are now neighbors. He prophesied the continued development in the areas of science, medicine, and technology of what he called automation and cybernation that would forever change life in the United States and the rest of the world. His remarks focused heavily on our nation's failure to address issues of poverty, economic exploitation, and increased militarization, the very same issues plaguing our nation today. And so how do we learn somehow to live with each other in peace? Well, fortunately, Dr. King gave us some clues as to how we can live in harmony in the World House. The admonition that I believe is most relevant to society today is to remain awake through great periods of social change. He reminded us that every society has its protectors of the status quo and its fraternities of the indifferent who are notorious for sleeping through evolutions. But today, our very survival depends on our ability to stay awake, to adjust to new ideas, to remain vigilant, and to face the challenge of change. The large house in which we live demands that we transform this worldwide neighborhood into a worldwide brotherhood and sisterhood. Together, we must learn to live as brothers and sisters, or we will perish, or we will be forced to perish together as fools. And so, my friends, we are currently in a great period of social change, but we must remember that we are interdependent that we are neighbors in the world house, and that the agony of the poor impoverishes the rich, and the betterment of the poor enriches the rich, and that whatever affects one directly 
affects all indirectly. We often talk about peace, but are reluctant to do the things necessary to make peace, to promote tranquility, to end hostilities, to live in harmony, to gather in the world house. And that we accomplish much of this through education, by learning about our history, about one another, and how central and, and, how central and equal and just education is to an equal and just democracy. So we must stay awake and remain vigilant now, this period of great social change, where we seem to be focusing more of our attention on what divides us than rather what unites us, and that unifying force is love. Or in the words of Mahatma Gandhi, the day the power of love overrules the love of power, the world will know peace. And for those laboring in the field of education and fighting for educational equality and justice, we must continue to ensure that all children live and learn together in the World House, a place that everyone can call home. Thank you. things a lot of times it's considered uh, might be characterized as something too controversial to discuss and uh, I guess what are your thoughts on that in terms I guess I'm thinking you know we want to educate you know students and about injustice and we're talking about you know murder that's that's acceptable and plus not only Um, I'm not an expert in policies related to, you know, abortion, the legalization of abortion. Um, it certainly is a moral issue, and what I really focus on as an education researcher is the ways in which we educate children in our formal, well, primarily public school systems, but also looking at charter schools and other forms of schooling. So I don't know that I can really give you um, a really experienced answer um, to your particular question. I do think it's important that um, for the children who are here, who are attending school, that we provide quality early childhood education, um, K-12 opportunities, particularly for those children who may have parents who have not had access to those same experiences, um, and that we are able to provide opportunity and this hope of an American dream that we often talk about for all children, regardless of um, the income of their parents or their circumstances. Is there is it just uh, social, like through the education you talked about, bringing up social issues and stuff, or is it your work focuses more just turning on the 
well, more teaching and learning. Um, you know, how are we preparing students to read, write, um, to understand history, science, and to be a productive member of a democracy? You're welcome. Um, that's a great question. Uh, definitely. I mean, I think public, the public school system was designed to socialize and to Americanize uh, immigrants that were coming into um, the United States. Um, I think that is why it becomes very complex in terms of what the true meaning and purpose uh, and goals of providing a public education are today. I think we have a lot of discussions about what we expect the role of um, public schools to play, but if I were to ask each of you what the role and purpose of a public education was, I would probably get um, a variety of answers. And so I think um, one of the things that I'm interested in is what, um, oh, I'm sorry. One of the things that I'm particularly interested in as we go forward and look at education in the 21st century is what our leaders, um, at the federal level, but also at the state level, because education is a state function. It's the role and responsibility of the state. It's not mentioned in the Constitution. Um, and so, you know, how do states perceive the role of public schools? What role does it play? What role does government play um, in a democracy? And at what level should we invest in and fund public schooling? And what role does socialization play? Um, and I think you've seen a lot of the debates in Texas, for example, over textbooks and curriculum. Um, and it's a very community-based ideal um, that varies from state to state. Uh, but I do think socialization is a big part of it, and schools are really a reflection of society. Um, but yet they are expected to kind of transform society. We look to schools to serve as a silver bullet um, that can solve all of um, society's problems. I think the two go hand in hand. Um, but that's part of why I really look at the social context of education and how poverty, neighborhoods, um, and communities impact whether or not stu students are able to take advantage of, of the, the schooling that they have in their communities. Thank you. You're welcome. I'd like Hello. to thank you for coming to speak to us tonight. You're welcome. Um, my question is, going forward, what kind of changes do you think are necessary in the structure of our educational system in order to close the achievement gap between different demographics? Um, there's lots of work to do. <laughs> And I, I really kind of problematize the term achievement gap. Um, and I've done this in other presentations of this. And based on a lot of the white supremacy work and <laughs> other stuff that you're doing here, I kind of wish I would have talked more about the social construction of race and how uh, it plays into schooling. Um, and I can talk about that more if you're interested. Um, but tell me your question again. It was. Uh, what should we be doing? Yeah, what kind of changes are necessary in the structure of our education in order to sort of close the gap in between Right, so I was problematizing the achievement gap. And I think, you know, I kind of touched on this in the presentation, but it's an achievement gap arguably only because there was a resource opportunity and access gap for so many years, right? And so if you have certain groups of children who had access to an education and those who didn't, we, would, we should probably conclude that there would be a gap in achievement and performance. Um, that being said, based on the research um, that I've shared on segregated schools, although that was a terrible context and situation that we would never want to return to, the support systems that were provided in that setting were very valuable to children. So the fact that uh, teachers and parents had very strong relationships, that there was a sense of trust and a sense of community in those areas. And if you talk to a lot of African-American individuals who grew up in segregated communities um, in the you know, 50s, 60s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they will tell you that oftentimes they were protected and kind of shielded from overt racism, but they had this strong community support, the sense of communal bonds is what Jerome Morris calls it, um, within their neighborhood where they were kind of insulated from racism, but they knew that everybody in that community wanted them to succeed. They would give the little money that they had to ensure that they succeeded. Um, and they were all rooting for them. And so you didn't have competing messages about, you did have competing messages about their ability, 
but it was counteracted by parents, teachers, community members. Um, one of my participants said, even the drunks on the corner, <laughs> uh, asked you uh, how was school going and wanted to help to make sure that you were going to school. So I think that fabric and that sense of community and support um, is really important. And I really have a problem with the notion of an achievement gap because I think it just, again, places this badge of inferiority on the students who are at the bottom of the gap. And so now it's an expectation. Uh, now we have normalized failure for large groups of students because they're black, because they're Latino, because they're poor, because they're immigrant, because they don't speak English as a first langu language. Um, and I think expectations are a really important part of achievement. And so, you know, I don't, I, I just really have a problem with uh, how popular the achievement gap terminology has become. Um, and although we've been talking about it for 20 years now, we have not succeeded in closing it. And until, again, we go back and look at that history in over 100 years of separate and unequal um, and really dismantling racism um, and these structural uh, challenges, I think we're going to continue to see gaps um, in education. Hi. Um, so, sort of going off that, do you suggest any sort of alternative means of measuring the success of school other than achievement? Yeah. Well, achievement defined broadly. So, it was funny, uh, one of my friends who's also a colleague at UT Austin, we were talking about this this weekend, and this notion of a community-based accountability system. So one of the areas that I work in is community-based education reform, where we're not just looking at, you know, just teaching and learning in schools, but what does a community, what do parents, um, and what do neighborhood residents deem uh, a good school to be or to look like? And I think that that is an important way to then measure the success of a school. Now, that's always a messy process when you're working with community stakeholders um, and coming up with an accountability system, but I think it would give us a better picture of what we expect our schools to do rather than a one-time test or you know, even a growth model that shows some growth over time. Um, but I think we need to put community back in the school. Um, and we need to have, recognize that interdependence between a neighborhood and its school. Sadly, which was really dismantled because of desegregation, although the intent was good, um, it did create this barrier between the home and the school and the community that I believe plays a very important role in whether or not school students are being successful or want to learn in the first place. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi. Um, as a senior listening to like postgraduate programs and students and seeing their expectations about like the framework that how like what are your opinions on um, this program and say yes or like this is a no. Are there any TFA TFAers in here? No? Um <laughs> so I I'll I'll start by saying I think that um, I applaud and admire anyone who wants to go into schools and help children, particularly those who are um, in underserved communities, to um, have access to quality um, educational opportunities and experiences. My only concern with TFA, and I've expressed this because they've had me come speak to their um, cores in Las Vegas, and they had over 180 that came to the city uh, last fall is the length of time that they spend in the schools. Um, and I think this is, you know, Linda Darling-Hammond, um, Lisa Delpit, and others have really um, critiqued this part of the, the program, that we know that teachers really hit their stride in the fifth year, and that teacher experience and quality is what is the biggest indicator of student success. And so with a two-year program that only requires, I think it's five or six weeks of training in the summer, is problematic for me. Now, I have, you know, some of my best friends at TFA. Um, you know, I know people in TFA and they're wonderful people and many of them go on to be great administrators and one of the things that they're doing now is really getting people in the policy arena. So, for example, in Nevada we just had State Board of Education elections and two of the members were TFA. They were funded um, and are now, you know, serving as elected officials in the state so that they can change policy. I do have a problem with them really pushing the licensure standards. Um, and what the long-term impact really is for the students in low-income communities. So what I have said is that if the program is so wonderful, then why not put the TFA students in the high-income areas and allow the more experienced teachers to work in the low-income underserved communities? 
And I would be interested to see what the parents in those communities would say to have their children taught by someone who had five weeks of instruction. Um, it may be, I think they have half a day of culturally relevant, you know, uh, pedagogy and instructional practices. So that's my only rub. Again, the students are wonderful and very highly impressive. I do have a problem, again, with privileging students, many who are privileged in one way or another because they have attended, you know, um, Ivy League institutions, have very, you know, impressive backgrounds, but they have access to scholarships and other opportunities that students who often are first generation or come from, you know, more working class backgrounds who have made a commitment to go into a four-year teacher education program, you know, they're being privileged over these students when it comes to jobs and placement. So it's more of a structural issue that I, that I have with TFA. Um, and it'll be, and the billion dollars that they're getting from the federal government to do this. So, you know, I think there's just more um, examination uh, that needs to take place there when public dollars are being used to fund, you know, this program. Have you watched the chance seen the documentary Waiting for Superman? Yes. Alright. Um, so I would just like to get your thoughts on that because like, I thought it was very powerful, but I found that um, many sociologists criticize it because it kind of focuses the problem on the schools and the teachers themselves. And so it, they criticize it by saying that it misses the point of how the kids grow up in poverty and stuff like that. So I'm sure both are a factor, but which one would, if you had to choose, or, you know, Is the video still on? Um, <laughs> so I watched it, I tried to forget, forget it. Um, I watched it and I think, maybe this may be too strong, but it, it was powerful, but most propaganda <laughs> is powerful. Um, I think it really, you know, it had an agenda. It was to really attack teachers' unions, and there's been this huge push um, from the corporate reform community to dismantle unions. I mean, we see it in, you know, all types of public institutions, but in terms of schools, it's really um, an effort to blame teachers um, who are working tremendously hard, um, who are asked to do more than they've ever been asked to do um, under very difficult conditions. Um, and so I felt like the movie was really just trying, you know, we're always looking for a boogeyman and to place blame on someone. Um, and, you know, I had, a, I had a problem with that. I, don't, I didn't think it told the whole story. And I think what I'm hoping is that the pendulum will begin to swing back to where we really look at and value teaching as a profession in this country. Um, and respect teachers like they do in other nations that do have better performance. Um, because they're not always beating up on teachers, but you know, um, supporting them. If we want them to do more, if we want them to um, increase student achievement within a year's time with students who are struggling with poverty or who are missing uh, 30 days out of the school year, then we need to provide the professional development and the community support to back them. And so I felt that that movie further created this wedge between um, those who may not have spent time in public schools, may have not stepped foot in a public school for I don't know how long, um, and continue to really erode the system of public education that has made our nation and democracy as great as it is, um, while advocating charter schools and other innovations, which really haven't, to my knowledge, produced any better results. But, you know, we're, I'm still waiting to see what that'll look like, but charter schools are performing at the same rate as public schools, and many of them have even more money um, to do so. So the jury's still out. Well, I, I think that's a great question. I actually think that everyone does have a role. And part of the problem um, with, I think, 
the anti-public education faction being able to um, play such a role that it has in education policy is that everyone else has you know, been fairly silent. Um, and so, do we support our teachers? Do we think public schools are important? And rather than, you know, and these movies make it difficult. Um, they're well funded. Um, a lot of the big, <laughs> as I see this camera staring in my face, these huge foundations that are funding school districts across the country, whether it's Gates, uh, Broad, um, you know, they're putting billions and billions of dollars into our education system to fuel innovation. Um, and so I don't know that there's a strong enough voice to really speak to the significance and importance of public schools other than the teachers' unions. And so you have this battle, whereas a lot of American people who send their children to public schools every day are not as actively engaged. And so the Annenberg Institute for School Reform, I think, is, has a wonderful um, community organizing department and a wonderful website with lots of resources for parents and people who are interested in uh, finding ways to support and advocate on behalf of education. And they really, I think, provide a nice example of how advancing educational equality and justice is a movement. Um, it requires coalitions of people who are gonna speak out and demand um, not only that we support public schools, but that um, we, how should I say this? That we give them the resources and um, the respect that they really deserve and hold them accountable at the same time. So it's not just saying our public schools are great and we love all of our teachers, but if your public school is only, only has 50% of its students reading at grade level, then there needs to be an out public outcry um, demanding that that be improved. So I think some of it is um, correcting the misinformation that's perpetuated out there. We can talk about charter schools and private schools. Charter schools still only educate about one, maybe 2% of the public school population. And so what about the other 99% of children? You know, how do we uh, create a more robust, rigorous, and equitable system of schools for the majority of children who will not have access to private schools or charter schools? And if we don't, what we're gonna end up having is another system of separate and unequal education where families who can't afford to get out of the public school system are gonna be stuck in a second class system. The Annenberg Institute for School Reform at Brown University, AISR. And I think the board has one last question. Okay. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I have a quick question. Maybe it's not a quick question. <laughs> but it's a question I hope that both you and Catherine and many of us who are doing service work um, that we can make speak to more for my center, we do a lot of continuing work that we want to do with Medic Ministry, and I looked up at the number of students in the school right now, and it's well in high schools. One of the problems that I have is that what we work with these children, and many times I ask them, well, um, what school do you go to? And they say, Villanova. And they say, you know, I want to go to Villanova too. And I think you can probably guess what the question is. Well, I mean, I, I always tell people to start with, within the sphere of influence that they have, right? So although you know, you're working with these high school students and you already can kind of anticipate maybe some of the challenges that they may have in accessing higher education here or uh, in a similar institution, you still interact with and influence the students that you have in this room and your, your classes or you know, um, whoever you, you see on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think the work can really start there. Um, you know, I wish that in, and I don't know what you know, type of curriculum you have here, 
But I wish that even in high school and middle school, we better prepared students and taught them to understand social stratification, inequality, and the history of it, of it in, this, in our country. Um, I think, you know, it's embarrassing, it's shameful, we don't want to talk about it, we don't, uh, we want to move forward. But at the same time, I think by understanding that, many students will understand that it's not their fault. So even the high school students who may not have that opportunity will understand it's not because I'm less than, it's not because I'm not capable, but there is a legacy of structural barriers and challenges um, that you can help to do something about, that you can work um, actively to try to dismantle and disrupt. So it's not an easy thing. I mean, this has been going on for long before we were here, and it's going to continue. But the more that we're conscious and aware of it and actively doing something about it, um, you know, we can make change. I think that's what the life and legacy of Dr. King and Coretta Scott King has shown us. And although he wasn't here to witness, um, uh, you know, even the inauguration on Monday, I think, you know, I can't imagine how gratifying but still shocking and surprising it would probably be for him to see um, how much has changed um, since, he, since he was on this earth. So, you know, it's difficult. There's some dark parts of our history, but we can also celebrate um, the transformation and change that we've endured. And, I don't know that that answered your question, but um, you know, in the end, there's always hope, and it can be one voice, one person, one interaction that can really change someone's way of thinking and the way that they interact with others. And so, I, we all have a sphere of influence, whether it's our friends, family, um, and people that we spend time with, and that's where you start. Dr. Rosie, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome.